This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Jocelyn Ernest was found dead in her house, with the thermostat turned up as high as it would go, a gun at her side, a pool of blood around her, and a typed suicide note. The note blamed financial problems and a new love unwilling to leave their family to be with her. It was a short letter written with a clinical tone, but it made it pretty clear that Jocelyn had likely committed suicide. Except, investigators immediately noticed some inconsistencies. There was evidence that her body had been moved from where it first hit the ground. Inside the house was a handwritten timeline that contained years of significant life events. A second person appeared to have added entries that spoke favorably of her estranged husband, Wesley Ernest, and pointed blame toward her for their relationship falling apart. There was a stack of notebooks where she had written her most intimate thoughts. One of the journal entries stated that if she was ever found dead, her husband had done it. As two of her friends stood outside, a police officer overheard one of them remark that, quote, he finally got her. The police were left with more questions than answers and knew they needed to talk to Wesley about the death of his wife. This is Monsters. Wesley Ernest was born on May 19, 1970, in a small town outside of Los Angeles. His parents, Robert and Patricia Ernest, moved the family to West Virginia when he was five years old. His parents divorced when he was 12. Wesley stayed with his mother, but his younger brother Tyler moved in with their father. He was close with his mother and tried to fill the role of man of the house by keeping up with repairs and general upkeep. Sports were his passion, particularly basketball. He started at West Virginia University in Morgantown in 1988. Initially, he was a civil engineering major, but changed his major to mathematics when he decided that he wanted to be a math teacher and basketball coach. Outside of his calculus class was where he first met Jocelyn Branham. She was as athletic as he was, if not more. After introducing himself to her, he invited her to play basketball. He was quickly taken with her confident and easygoing spirit. Her kind nature made confrontation challenging. She struggled to stand up for herself and would do whatever she could to keep the peace. Early in the relationship, she saw signs that Wesley had a controlling disposition. His temper scared her and he was manipulative. He exhibited qualities she didn't want in her partner and she broke up with him. After the breakup, he insinuated that he wouldn't even bother pulling the cord the next time he went skydiving. The suicidal threat frightened Jocelyn and she knew she wouldn't be able to live with the guilt if he did something. She agreed to get back together with him. Because getting someone to date you by threatening suicide if they don't is always how strong relationships start out. 
When they graduated, Wesley took a job in Bedford, Virginia as a math teacher and basketball coach as he had planned. Although Jocelyn stayed in West Virginia, the pair stayed together and made the long-distance relationship work. Wesley's proposal was elaborate. He filled a box with coins and put a note inside that said, Marry me, then he buried it in the ground. They went to where he had placed the box and he handed her a metal detector. After finding it, she agreed to his proposal and they married in 1995. On the day of their wedding, Jocelyn feared she was making a huge mistake. Because she was. Wesley's behavior often made her feel unsettled and it wasn't likely that being married would change that. It was unknown if they'd have the equal partnership that she sought. She told herself it was last-minute anxiety. Her family went to a lot of trouble and expense for the day and she couldn't disappoint them. Jocelyn wanted kids but couldn't imagine Wesley as a father. His temper was too volatile and his control issues would have damaged a child. He also would want to raise their children in his faith. It seemed out of nowhere when he announced one day that he wanted to become a Jehovah's Witness, despite not having a particularly religious background. He felt that his newfound spirituality helped with his anger issues. His spiritual journey led him to making a different group of friends. Jocelyn wouldn't go to church with him, but sometimes went to events like picnics. He took his faith seriously and strictly followed the Jehovah's Witness lifestyle. It meant he steered clear of modern medicine and regarded all holidays as pagan. The only day he celebrated was the memorial of Christ's death, which happened around Easter. Jocelyn had to deliver the heartbreaking news to a friend that they couldn't be the godparents of her child because Jehovah's Witnesses saw christenings as a Catholic conspiracy. She felt he was pulling her away from her family, who loved celebrating the holidays. One Thanksgiving, he agreed to go with her to her family's home in West Virginia to celebrate. While she was inside eating dinner with her relatives, he sat in the car. Almost every other year, he would have stayed at the house so she could go Black Friday shopping in the morning with her mother and sister. But that night, she got in the car with Wesley and they drove back to Virginia. They bought a home at Smith Mountain Lake with the hopes that it would bring them closer together. Wesley loved the house, and while he hired 80 subcontractors, he did a lot of smaller jobs with Jocelyn's help. Rather than uniting them, it was a source of conflict. Wesley would never give in when there was a conflict and wouldn't even let Jocelyn choose the tile color. She went along with things to keep the peace, but was growing resentful. He was creating more and more tension between them and their friends. On one of their vacations, their friends wanted to celebrate their child's birthday, which Wesley openly opposed as his religion didn't recognize such parties and he made sure everyone knew about it. On another trip, their friend's teenage daughter left her empty can of Diet Dr. Pepper on the dock after she drank it. Her mother saw it and sent her outside to retrieve it. The teenager picked it up and crushed it. Later, they saw a crushed can of Diet Dr. Pepper floating in the lake. Wesley lost it on the girl, screaming at her in front of everyone for being irresponsible. Her mother would not sit by and watch him attack her child. She snapped back at him, but he couldn't stand for anyone to speak to him that way. He lost it on her, telling her nobody was allowed to talk to him like that. Afterward, Jocelyn approached the friend, saying Wesley wanted her to apologize for how she acted and spoke to him. The friend was willing to do it out of loyalty to Jocelyn, but doubted it would help. Even Jocelyn admitted she didn't think it would make a difference. 
A clear shift happened that day. Wesley didn't want Jocelyn influenced by someone like that and forbade them from spending time together. His attempt at controlling her backfired. She saw her friend anyway, who she confided in about the troubles they were having in their relationship. Wesley's attitude towards money and his controlling behavior were growing unbearable. His sexual demands seemed impossible to meet, and they fought over many fundamental things, such as the lake house, family, religion, and holidays. He wanted to live at the lake house full-time. It would be an easy commute for him, but a much longer one for Jocelyn. Of course, what would make life better for him was the more important issue. A house two lots down from their main home went on the market, and Wesley purchased it as a rental property. First, he invited his brother Tyler and his wife to move into the rental, but then decided to rent it to somebody else. He asked Tyler and his sister-in-law to live with him and Jocelyn instead. Jocelyn disliked Tyler. The whole setup was designed to get her to move into the lake house. She still didn't intend on moving out, but Wesley started spending less time at their main home. Tyler was still there, and she didn't want to be around him, so she spent most of her time at a friend's house. Wesley's excuse for his absence was that being around his brother brought up repressed trauma. He implied that Tyler sexually abused him when he was younger and he'd still been in therapy because of it, which should make anyone wonder why he asked them to move in with them in the first place. Wesley was spending the nights at his office or the lake house, but when she did see him, he was in a foul mood and obsessed with money. His brother eventually moved out, but Wesley didn't come home. He even changed his mailing address to the lake house, but eventually Jocelyn learned that his brother was not the person keeping him away from their home. While shopping at a big lots, he met Shamika Wright, a clerk at the store who was also an ex-police officer. He was buying painting supplies when he first spoke with her and the pair started to spend a lot of time together. He told Shamika that he was separated from Jocelyn. They were still friends, he explained, but there was no romance there anymore. As their relationship became more serious, they took trips together around Virginia and other places. Jocelyn was at the lake house one day when she noticed unfamiliar hairs on the bed and in the bathtub. She confronted Wesley, who told her the story of a very different Shamika Wright to the one he was dating. He told Jocelyn that she was a very overweight and unattractive woman he met at a suicide support group. She was desperate for money, so he offered her a job as a cleaning lady for the house. It was known amongst friends that he had a wandering eye. One evening, they were out to dinner when he flirted with the waitress in front of Jocelyn, bragging that he'd have her number by the night's end. When he told her the story about Shamika Wright, she was skeptical but was desperate to save their marriage. She wanted counseling, but he refused to pay someone to tell him what to do. Jocelyn and a friend googled Shamika's name and found her address. They drove out there a few nights that summer and often they would see Wesley's car parked there. One night, they caught a glimpse of her and she was not one bit overweight like he'd described. It was clear that he was cheating and Jocelyn decided that his not wanting to go to counseling shouldn't stop her from trying it. She went alone and her therapist encouraged her to keep a record of key events and to write in a journal. Holding on to hope that her relationship would improve, she poured her heart into wire-bound notebooks. Therapy empowered her and helped her think clearly. Still, dissolving the relationship that she fought tirelessly to fix would be devastating, until one evening when she realized it was officially over. 
Jocelyn hired a private investigator to follow Wesley and Shamika. She wanted to know how much time they spent together and how intense the relationship was. The investigator produced in-depth records of the times the two spent together, making it clear that it was not just a fling. A friend drove with her to the Smith Mountain Lake House, Wesley's favorite place. When they got there, they saw two cars parked in the driveway, one of which was his. The shades were open, making it easy for them to peek inside. They saw him washing his face and brushing his teeth in the bathroom. It was innocent enough at first until he handed a towel to Shamika, who wrapped herself in it as she got out of the bath. They climbed into bed together and something inside of Jocelyn snapped. She charged to the bedroom window, which she accessed from a small deck off of the house. After hitting the glass, she shouted at them that she could see what they were doing. She turned to walk away, but spun back around and hit the window again. All that Wesley did was shake his head, but Shamika looked directly at the women, smiling and waving at them. It was time to file for divorce. The divorce papers included Wesley's adultery, cruelty, desertion, and the couple being separated for over a year. Wesley denied the affair and deflected it by claiming that Jocelyn spent barely any time at their marital house, which was listed as the lake house at the time. He alleged that her lack of interest in him led to their demise. When it came to the adultery charges, his defense was that Jocelyn repeatedly encouraged him to find someone else to have sex with, as she could no longer meet his sexual needs. He filed a motion of relief requesting exclusive use of their lake house, temporary spousal support from Jocelyn, and $100,000 in escrow to cover the loan for the rental home they borrowed from his father. She objected to helping him with his financial issues and wanted to sell the lake house, since he had spent more time there with Shamika than the two of them ever had. Their conversations happened through lawyers as Jocelyn refused to speak to him herself. She changed the locks on her house and had a security system installed. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Throughout the proceedings, she met with her therapist, which helped her find the strength to fight him. In the days leading up to her death, Jocelyn had carved out her own life away from Wesley. She continued to work at Genworth Financial, where she was very well-liked and successful. Enjoying some time off from work, she went shopping with Marcy Shepard, a co-worker and close friend. They planned to see each other again the evening of December 19, 2007, and texted throughout the day. The communication faded in the evening. Jocelyn abruptly stopped answering Marcy's texts. She tried emailing her, thinking something might be wrong with her phone. Then, she sent another message. It was likely they wouldn't see one another that evening, so Marcy drove to work and put Jocelyn's Christmas gift on her desk. She couldn't get rid of the feeling that something wasn't right. It wasn't like Jocelyn to stop communicating like that, especially when they had plans for the evening. She found herself driving towards Jocelyn's house. The outside was lit, but the inside seemed dark. However, her car was in the driveway. Convinced that she was overreacting, Marcy set her phone to alert her when Jocelyn logged in to the Genworth instant messaging system in the morning. 
Jocelyn was always one of the first people in the office, but it was 10 a.m., and Marcy still hadn't gotten an alert that she was online. Her gut told her to drive to Jocelyn's house again. This time, she knocked on the front door. When there was no answer, she hit it with her fists, making enough noise that Jocelyn could hear her no matter where she was in the house. A slew of scenarios played out in her mind. She could have fallen and hurt herself or been too sick to answer the door. All of the windows were covered, so she couldn't see inside. She knocked on each one, but there was a stillness inside, like nobody was home, but her car was there. Mesa Muncy, their mutual friend and co-worker, didn't know what was happening either. Marcy called her to see if she'd heard from Jocelyn. They stayed on the phone with each other while Marcy found Jocelyn's spare key in her shed and unlocked the front door. She was met with a wave of heat so strong that it fogged up her glasses. Inside was Jocelyn's body, laying in a pool of blood with a gun at her side. Mesa joined Marcy and they waited for the police. Deputies rushed to the scene. Jocelyn lay with blood streaks across her face and a revolver placed on her coat. They found a typed suicide note near the door. A cabinet by the bed was open and an unopened condom was inside. On the bathroom floor, they found an empty condom wrapper and an unused condom in the trash. They backed out of the residence so they could obtain a search warrant. The house was disorganized but hadn't been broken into or ransacked. Written on oversized paper was a timeline of the past 11 years of Jocelyn's life. Each entry was handwritten in first person, but there were two different handwriting styles, likely meaning two people had written on it. There was the dominant handwriting style and the second one that exclusively wrote favorable entries about Wesley, because that's not obvious. The question was, did he make those additions during their divorce, or could it be that he wrote those things after committing her murder? They also found a stack of journals at the scene. One entry explicitly said that if Jocelyn was ever found dead, her husband killed her as she would never kill herself. The scene appeared to have been staged to look like a suicide, but investigators were not convinced. Her alleged suicide note was typed rather than handwritten. It cited that Wesley had left them in a terrible financial situation from which they'd never recover and mentioned a new love that wouldn't leave their family. Despite personal details being included in it, the overall tone was impersonal. Having read suicide notes in the past, this one seemed out of place. The house's heat was cranked up to 90 degrees Fahrenheit, about 32 degrees Celsius, the highest temperature the thermostat would go. Inside one of the rooms was her black Labrador, Rufus, who was shut away in his crate without food or water. Her family and friends were adamant that she would never leave her dog in those conditions. Her face was covered in bloodstains and there were streaks of blood across the floor that indicated she'd been moved or dragged after being shot. The bullet entered the back of her head and exited the front. Investigators needed a forensic analysis to determine whether she could have shot herself in the head in that angle. If it was a homicide, they had three suspects. Marcy Shepard, who found her, Wesley Ernest, who was estranged from her, or her unknown new love referenced in the note. An officer called Wesley's cell phone that evening to tell him what had happened to Jocelyn and to ask him to come into the station for questioning. He was emotionless and inconvenienced at the idea of going to the station. He said he was tired from traveling and that he would be there in the morning. The officer pushed for him to come in that evening, but he wouldn't budge. 
When he turned up for the interview the following day, he seemed detached from the situation. One of the officer's first questions was if he already knew that Jocelyn was dead when they spoke. He said he did. Shamika's mother had told him after she saw on the news that there was a developing story about a woman dying under suspicious circumstances on the street where he used to live. If he knew that she was dead, perhaps it would explain his flat tone over the phone. His recollection of events on the Wednesday of her death was vague and hazy, but he was very specific about the following Thursday and Friday. He spoke lovingly about Jocelyn, talking about how wonderful of a person she was and explaining she was a great athlete and admitted to breaking her heart. The interviewer asked why he would stray from someone that he seemed to love so much and he explained that she told him to sleep with other women. Sure she did. Unlike others interviewed, Wesley insisted it was suicide and spoke in depth about her depression. Despite being adamant that she killed herself, he refused to take a polygraph test. Maybe he didn't know how Jocelyn spoke about him to her friends and in her journals, but as investigators learned more about their marriage and how he treated her, he became their number one suspect. Investigator Gary Babb drove to Shamika's parents' home to interview them. They spent a lot of time with Wesley and could hold clues as to what happened the night of Jocelyn's murder. Bab directly asked if they thought he had killed Jocelyn, but both were certain he couldn't do such a thing. His next question would define the course of the rest of the interview. He wanted to know if Shamika mentioned having an STD. Her mother made it clear that she would never discuss sex with her adult children and that Bab just wanted to drive a wedge between the family. The fact was that Wesley had herpes. Bab wanted to make sure that Shamika knew. Shamika's interview brought very little new information. At times, it seemed like she was interviewing the investigators rather than the other way around. She asked them lots of questions while they were trying to figure out if she was involved in the murder. She was arrogant and used her past experience as a police officer to her advantage. Most questions she answered only with a yes or no. She wanted them to tell her more information about the fingerprints they had found, their DNA samples, the tire track impressions found in the scene, and other pieces of forensic evidence. With her attorney present, she turned to him instead if they asked her a question she didn't want to answer. Investigators ultimately concluded that she didn't know anything about the case. Wesley looked even worse when the forensic analysis returned. If Jocelyn was holding the gun when she was shot, there would be blood spatter and gun residue on her hands. There was no blood or GSR on her hands, and she had no injury to her nails, foreign material beneath them, and they found no other debris on her hands. Her only wound was on her head, and they found that the gun was not in contact with her skin when it was fired. The barrel was not pressed against her head. It was between two inches and two feet away when it was fired. She would have died almost instantly from the bullet as it traversed the right back portion of her brain. It cut across the brainstem, which would have rendered her unconscious and unable to move. Therefore, she couldn't have moved her own body after being shot. While the circumstances around her death were being investigated, family and loved ones planned Jocelyn's funeral. Wesley was extremely difficult. He felt it was his right to decide what happened to her as they were still legally married. His wishes were to have her cremated in a cardboard box and placed in a simple urn. Her family wanted to lay her to rest in West Virginia, where she grew up and most of them still lived. Attorneys got involved and suddenly the conflict went away. 
Jocelyn's body was transported to West Virginia. The funeral was low-key and largely overshadowed by the unanswered questions about her death. Her mother wanted something that would smell like her daughter for the coffin. She begged investigators to let her find one thing in the house to bury her with, and they took pity on the grieving woman. She settled on Jocelyn's pillow. A memorial was hosted in Virginia, which 400 people attended. She was recognized for being a caring and loving person that would do whatever she could to help those in need. Once the pretrial proceedings began, fingerprints on the suicide note matched Wesley's, and neither of Jocelyn's two printers was hooked up to a computer the night she died. The medical examiner asserted that she likely did not commit suicide and that the distance from which she was shot made it almost impossible for her to have done it herself. Her therapist testified that she met with Jocelyn that day. She was upbeat and excited about the holidays. The defense highlighted that Wesley's name was mentioned in the note, which would have been something strange for a murderer to do. Because, you know, murderers never do anything stupid. They said that if they went to trial, they would also contest the fingerprint matches because they were only partial prints, meaning they couldn't be definitive. The judge found probable cause that Wesley was guilty and sent the case to a grand jury. On Friday, March 20, 2009, the Smith Mountain Lake House burst into flames. The air around it filled with black smoke, and a neighbor reported smelling a strong kerosene odor before the fire started. It was reported at 6.43 p.m., and the house was unsavable by the time firefighters reached the scene. Sixty firefighters from around the area responded to the call. Investigators were shocked to see it burning. They also sent personnel to the other Ernest home to make sure it wasn't also on fire. The lake house burnt for over an hour before it was extinguished. Wesley's whereabouts were in question until his lawyer reached him. The following day, a Saturday, investigators searched for the cause of the fire. They had a working theory that Wesley was refinishing furniture in the home's great room, which would usually be done in the garage. Stain-soaked rags were left under the safety light, which could have lit a slow fuse and would have caused the flames to engulf the timber-framed home. It was undoubtedly suspicious timing. Wesley recently received a foreclosure notice on the home, his prized possession. He still owed $990,000 on it, and the insurance would also run out in July. The only person that would benefit from the fire was Wesley. Earlier that day, he had removed the house from the rental website where he had it posted. Insurance paid over $1 million, leaving Wesley with over $100,000 in profit. He likely used the money on his attorney and to pay back some of what he borrowed from Shamika. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Jocelyn's family sued Wesley Ernest, his lawyers, and Shamika Wright over the insurance proceedings. In the lawsuit, they alleged that Wesley was not entitled to profit from Jocelyn's death. He unlawfully kept the couple's homes and properties, jointly owned vehicles, and Jocelyn's personal property. Her relatives had a claim on the insurance payments, but he never gave them anything. 
His lawyer argued that the insurance money was not a result of Jocelyn's death. Many believed Wesley was behind the fire, but no arrests were ever made. Before the start of the trial, Judge Updike ruled that Jocelyn's journals could not be used as evidence in court as doing so would deny Wesley's constitutional right to confront his accuser. She was not there to vouch for them, meaning that anything she wrote would be dismissed as hearsay. The prosecution took possession of the notebook so that nobody could read them until the trial was over, especially not the media. The highly anticipated trial began with arguments from the prosecution. Lead prosecutor Wes Nance presented his arguments. To Wes, it was simple. Wesley was a person that yearned for a life of wealth, lust, and sex. The only person standing in his way was Jocelyn, but his crime was sloppy. The night of the murder, he borrowed a friend's truck after work and returned it before school three mornings later. After Jocelyn was found, he changed its tires so its tracks couldn't be linked to the vehicle. The tire store manager was confused when Wesley wanted to replace the truck's tires. It already had new tires, and they were much better quality than the cheap ones Wesley bought. After the manager asked if he was sure, Wesley simply said he didn't like the current ones because they didn't drive well. The only fingerprint on the suicide note was Wesley's. He had bought her the Smith & Wesson revolver found at the scene, but its box was at Shamika's house. In media interviews, Wesley bragged about how much money he had. He wanted those around him to think he was rich, but the truth was that he had $125,000 in debt even before the money he owed on his properties. When he discovered that Jocelyn was dead, either by suicide or homicide, he was emotionless and cold. Going to the police station for questioning was an inconvenience, and throughout the interview, he emphasized that Jocelyn must have ended her life. Wesley's lawyer defended his indifferent stance when he found out what happened to her. The defense's angle took aim at Jocelyn's close friends, Marcy Shepard and Mesa Muncy. They were the ones that found the body and spent more time with her in the days leading up to her death. She had texted Marcy throughout the day of her death as well. If someone else wrote the suicide note, why was the finger pointed at Wesley? Why would he mention himself in it? Putting his name in the investigators' minds would link him to the case, even if it was just as a witness. Since Marcy knew how to get into the house, she could have been the one that moved the body. When opening arguments ended, the first witness, Marcy Shepard, took the stand. Marcy had met Jocelyn in the summer of 2005 when she joined Genworth Financial. She would be the training leader for the company-wide challenge that Jocelyn was running. The challenge meant they worked longer hours than usual, but spending so much time together made them very close. After work, they would get dinner and grab a drink. Sometimes they'd just go on long walks and have in-depth conversations. During one of those talks, Jocelyn admitted that she was frightened of Wesley. For a time, it went unspoken, but Marcy was falling in love with Jocelyn. She could share secrets with her and Jocelyn would listen, comfort her, or make her laugh when she needed it. The two were talking on the phone when Marcy asked if she kissed Jocelyn, would she kiss her back? She then drove Jocelyn home after a work holiday party and was invited inside, where they sat on the couch and chatted for a while. Marcy leaned in for a kiss, but it was a bad idea the pair concluded. Despite being separated, both women were technically still married. They never had another chance to explore the physical side of their relationship. In the second half of 2007, 
Marcy watched her dear friend develop a renewed lust for life. She was making life plans and was excited to spend the holidays with her family. She focused on looking after herself and started eating healthy and working out. Years later, Marcy was giving witness testimony at Jocelyn's murder trial. The identity of the new love mentioned in the suicide note had not been determined yet. Marcy admitted that it was her, and Jocelyn believed Wesley would kill them if he found out about it. She had installed a new security system to keep him out of her house. The defense interrogated her. Why did she visit Jocelyn's house that night? Why didn't she go inside? Why did she go to their office so late in the day? Why did she go back in the morning? He tried to make her a suspect, but she explained that she went to their office to leave Jocelyn's gift on her desk, but the defense insinuated that she went there to type the suicide note. As the trial went on, it was getting harder and harder for the defense to assert Wesley's innocence. The assistant medical examiner told the court that the wounds indicated that the shooting couldn't have been self-inflicted. Their angles were just too awkward. When somebody uses a gun to commit suicide, they place the barrel directly against their head. The bullet entered Jocelyn's skull at an angle that would have instantly incapacitated her. Trails of blood on her face show that she was moved after being shot, something she couldn't have done herself. Somebody moved her two feet from where she first fell to the ground. A forensic linguist analyzed the suicide note. As others expressed, it lacked emotion and was grammatically clumsy with limited punctuation. Jocelyn had been journaling prolifically, leaving the linguist with abundant writing samples to study. He concluded that it was improbable that she wrote the note, but couldn't say with certainty that Wesley had. Two teachers who worked with Wesley testified that he told them how rich he was. He bragged about being worth at least five million and denied ever having a wife. One of them offered him her condolences after news broke about Jocelyn, and he snapped at her, sick of having to explain that he wasn't married. Which is strange, because when it came to her burial, he was adamant that he had a say because they were married. A forensic scientist addressed the fingerprints on the note. There were two, one in the front and one in the back. He confirmed that they were a definite match. Notably, they didn't find any of Jocelyn's fingerprints on the paper. Now it was the defense's turn to refute the evidence and testimonies. They claimed that Jocelyn was leading a secret life with Marcy Shepard. If anyone was guilty of the crime, it was Marcy. The defense told the court that Jocelyn's security system was deactivated at 7.30 p.m. the night when she was at a work Christmas dinner. Wesley didn't know the code to her system, so it must have been someone else. This backfired, though, because after Jocelyn's death... The security company checked the system and discovered that either the system wasn't properly set or that a power outage knocked it out. Also, records showed that Jocelyn paid for the work dinner and the restaurant charged her credit card at 7.18 p.m. She would have been home at around 7.30, so she would have been there to deactivate the system when she entered the house. Backed into a corner, the defense pivoted to Jocelyn's mental health and her therapist took the witness stand. In July of 2005, Jocelyn started counseling sessions. Jocelyn fought to keep her marriage together. She did everything she could think of, even overlooking Wesley's bad and often frightening qualities. In therapy, she was processing feelings of failure and fear of change. 
The end of the marriage had a profound impact on her personal life, and she dealt with depression and anxiety as she faced her new reality. Her therapist encouraged her to journal as a way of processing her feelings. Her mental health improved with the aid of therapy and medication. She was no longer depressed or anxious and eager to start her new life. Jocelyn's last session was on the day that she died. The therapist said she was in good spirits, looking forward to Christmas and excited for what the new year would hold. That evening, she exhibited no signs of wanting to harm herself or commit suicide. She was content. The defense's line of questioning was aggressive and arguably manipulative. He asked her if she had ever dealt with people struggling with their sexuality or in the process of coming out. She had dealt with it before in her practice, as many counselors would have. The next question was if it was a traumatic time for a person. She confirmed that it could be, but everyone was different. Some might have found it terrifying and others might have seen it as liberating. There were too many variables to give a clear yes or no to a question like that. The lawyer kept cutting her off. He wanted her to say it would be traumatic without any caveats, but she couldn't, and he kept interrupting her responses. Before he finished, he asked her if she knew about Jocelyn's relationship with Marcy Shepard. She said no, she hadn't found out until Jocelyn's death. Wesley wanted his chance to take the stand and testify. The decision was risky, but very common for murderers who were massive narcissists. They think they're smarter than everyone else and can easily talk their way out of anything. He gave his version of events. Jocelyn was a wonderful, kind, and fun person. He admired her, but she couldn't give him the affection he needed. As great a person as she was, Wesley saw their relationship as more of a friendship than something romantic. Tearfully, he said he used to call her Buddy. He reiterated that she told him he should have sex with other people, the same line he used any time his affair with Shamika Wright came up. The truth was, he wanted more from their marriage than Jocelyn could provide. At least, that's what he told the jury. Shamika filled the void that Jocelyn's lack of intimacy left. A job in Chesapeake arose, and he took it. He was separated from Jocelyn and didn't want to lose her as a friend, but he needed a fresh start. On December 19, 2007, he was at his apartment in Chesapeake, suffering from seasonal allergies. The firearm was a present that he gave to her for self-defense now that she would be living alone, but he could have never imagined she'd use it to hurt herself. Again, like most narcissistic murderers who take the stand, he came across as arrogant and disingenuous. Two women were on Wesley's side. His mother blamed his behavior in recent years on a midlife crisis but said he was incapable of murder. She scoffed at the idea that her son was behind the suicide note. He was poorly written with bad grammar, and Wesley was a far better writer than that. Shamika also denied that he would ever do anything so violent, something I imagine would be easier to believe than accepting that you were attracted to a cold-blooded murderer. After ten days of testimony, the jury found Wesley Ernest guilty of first-degree murder. Then, a month later, a judge declared a mistrial while Wesley was awaiting sentencing. Somehow, Jocelyn's stack of spiral notebooks found its way into the jury room during deliberation, and the jurors read them. Whatever they thought before reading the journals was irrelevant, as they likely swayed any unsure juror's opinion. No TV cameras were allowed in the second trial. The prosecution focused on the suicide note, Jocelyn's relationship with Marcy, and Wesley's crippling debt. 
with more time to prepare and an awareness of the evidence that the prosecution would lose, the defense returned much stronger than the last time. Wesley testified again, of course. He was well-rehearsed and far more personal. Prosecutor Wes Nance feared that his newfound ability to relate to jurors and show more charisma could change the trial's outcome. However, Wesley started to falter when the prosecution confronted him about the written-out timeline they found at Jocelyn's house. They believed he had altered it and added entries where he pretended to be her. If they could get him to admit this, then it would be far easier to say he wrote the suicide note impersonating her as well. The second handwriting style only added entries that were favorable to Wesley on the timeline. They included one from 1996 that said she kept encouraging him to sleep with someone else and come home to her, and another from 1997 saying she told Wesley she didn't want to be with him sexually. Other suspicious entries placed the blame for the marriage's deterioration on Jocelyn, with mention that he kept trying to talk to her but she was shutting him out, that he wanted to give it another chance but her family had too much influence over her, and that she never cared for his mother and didn't fully embrace him. Eventually, he admitted that he had written the extra entries. When asked how he gained entry into the house to write on the timeline, he said she had a broken window at the time. It was easy to open it from the outside and sneak into the house. The jury found Wesley guilty again and recommended a sentence of life in prison plus three years for the use of a firearm in the commission of a felony. According to Wesley's mother, the jury had too many preconceived ideas about her son to give him a fair trial. The defense told reporters that his strategy was constrained by the judge and he would be filing an appeal. Wesley's lawyer had filed documents for the planned testimony of a UCLA law professor who had studied the reliability of partial fingerprints. Using the fingerprints on the suicide note as evidence against Wesley was something the defense had fought from the beginning. He believed that the judge not letting his expert witness testify hurt the defense's case. On September 12, 2012, the Court of Appeals of Virginia heard both sides' oral arguments. Three months later, they ruled that the court did not abuse its discretion and upheld the verdict. And with that, Wesley Ernest could no longer claim to be the victim. He had to accept that he was, in fact, a monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233 or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.